All right, so we are walking through a series on the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets, and they're called minor not because they're like the minor leagues of Old Testament prophets, but because these prophets are, these books are shorter. That's all. So there's the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those books are longer, and Hosea through Malachi, they're shorter, so they're called the minor prophets. And we're going to take one book per week for 12 weeks. We started last week in Hosea, and this morning we're looking at the book of Joel. So you have time to find it. If you're not exactly sure where it is, you can even use the uh, table of contents. But it's toward the back of uh, the Old Testament, and it's the book right after the book of Hosea that we looked at last week. All right? And also, if you weren't here last week and didn't, or didn't join us on the live stream last week, um, we gave a reading plan to go along with this series because the Minor Prophets sometimes are uh, low traffic uh, portion of the Bible. Not a lot of people read them and familiar, are familiar with them. So uh, put together a reading plan, actually two different ones, one that's a little heavier, one that's a little lighter that will take you through these books through these three months and also um, give you some really helpful introductory videos by the Bible Project. And so that was sent in the Wednesday and Friday email. Uh, if you got that, those links are at the bottom to the reading plan. And if you're visiting or if you're just joining us for the first time live stream or in person, you can just shoot an email to info at bbcde and we can send you a copy of that reading plan. All right? Okay, so... Did you know that heavy rains in recent years in the Arabian Peninsula have unleashed the possibility of a devastating plague on the Horn of Africa and surrounding countries? The wet conditions that these heavy rains as a result of some cyclones are a breeding ground for locusts, okay? And they have been multiplying like crazy, like they tend to do in these conditions. So Somalia has already declared a state of national emergency this year. Ethiopia is struggling under serious threat. And Kenya has seen swarms of locusts like they haven't seen in 70 years. So now for the mini primer on locusts. You know, for those of you who don't work for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, um, you can always go onto their website, and there is a Locust Watch page, um, up-to-the-minute information on what's going on in these countries that are under threat. Did you know that exists? There's, are you guys, yeah, you can go like this. I can't really see your mouths, but okay, there we go. So locusts are grasshoppers, but they are a specific kind of grasshopper that go through this like crazy transformation under certain circumstances. So when locusts exist in their grasshopper phase, they lead pretty solitary lives, okay? They're also just like this drab, tan, or brown, and they really don't draw that much attention to themselves, okay? But when there's been a lot of rainfall like there has in recent years, they breed like crazy and lay like a gazillion eggs, like a thousand per square meter of soil. Their bodies go through this like mutant-like transformation. Their color changes from that drab tan to black and yellow. They grow bigger muscles and their body size increases. 
And instead of operating in this independent, solitary manner like they usually do, they enter what biologists call the gregarious phase. Seriously, this is like Jekyll to Hyde transformation in nature. Or for you, Lord of the Rings enthusiasts, you could call them, you could kind of think of these guys like the, the insect orcs of Africa, okay? Wherever they go, they just leave scorched earth behind. They eat all the vegetation, sometimes even eating the bark off of trees, leaving stripped white sticks behind. When they've stripped an area bare, they rise up, catch the wind, and migrate in search of more food. They can arrive in the morning, and by afternoon, the complete livelihood of a village is gone like that. They are ravenous and insatiable. They can consume their weight in food daily, which, okay, they only weigh like two grams. But when you get a swarm the size of a square kilometer, which is like a third of a square mile roughly, they can eat the equivalent of what 35,000 humans would eat in a day. So one swarm that was recorded in Kenya had an estimated 200 billion locusts. That many locusts would eat as much as 84 million people would eat in a day. Swarms can cover 100 square miles with 40 to 80 million locusts in a half of a square mile. So in northern Kenya, one swarm was reported to be 25 miles long by 37 miles wide. Can you fathom that? That would blanket Paris 24 times over. Those who've seen some of these large swarms testify to the sky going dark. When they migrate, they can easily cover 60 to 100 miles a day. They ride the winds until they find another place to feed. They, they cross the Red Sea, which is like 186 miles. In 1988, they traveled 3,000 miles in 10 days, crossing the Atlantic and showing up in the Caribbean and South America. Wouldn't you love it if we add locusts to the murder hornets and, you know, whatever else might be waiting for us in 2020? One article I read said that once they enter the gregarious phase, a generation of locusts can multiply 20-fold every three months. Just think of the exponential growth. Another article says locusts typically have a lifespan of about three to five months. Since desert locusts breed so quickly, a plague can last longer than a decade. So you can imagine how the Horn of Africa and some of the surrounding countries are feeling right now if this goes bad badly. Now imagine you are a subsistence farmer in Kenya. A poor crop threatens not only your livelihood, but potentially your life and the lives of those you love. A decimated crop is utterly devastating to you. At least maybe in our day and age, there could our day and age, there could be the possibility of outside aid for your survival, although that's precarious, especially um, given all the other factors going on in the world today. But back thousands of years ago, you know, 2,500 years ago, when this is written roughly, would you be apathetic to the threat of this intruding army of insects? I don't think so. 
So one newspaper interviewed Dino Martins, an entomologist, biologist, and executive director of Impala Research Center in Kenya. Their last question in this interview was, is there any long-term solution for these swarms? Short answer, well, anyway. Martins replied, I see the locust swarms as a message from nature. As terrifying and as dramatic as they are, there is a deeper message. And the message is that we are changing the environment, creating ideal conditions for more and more locusts to breed. Climate change is a bigger factor because when weather patterns change, it can bring much more rain, for instance. And who gets to win at that game? Well, the locusts. If we don't address the deeper, bigger issues, we are going to face even bigger problems. Okay, fair enough. Climate change is a concern. We human beings on the whole have not been very good stewards of God's green earth. But here in Joel, there is a much deeper meaning to the locusts and a much deeper message. The locusts are a message from God. They were actually his judgment. And they were meant to draw attention to much deeper, bigger issues. Issues that are way more significant, actually, than climate change because they are eternally significant. And if these people didn't heed the message, they would face those bigger problems, problems bigger than decimated crops. So let's dive in. We're going to actually read quite a bit of this book this morning, so get ready. Um, One little quick thing here I'll say. We don't know exactly when Joel was written when he prophesied. It seems like the most likely time frame is around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So roughly 444 BC, maybe the decades to follow, somewhere in that range. Um, So here we go. There's an outline um, on that link, the sermon notes, where you can follow along here. The, The points will be on the slides behind me here. So first point the locust army of the Lord. So let's look at verse first at chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Total destruction. And so, verse 5, awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. If the grapes get eaten up, then you're not going to have your wine. And the point is, this is judgment because the people of God had gotten comfortable and they were not trusting him and they were stubborn and rebellious. And so God gets their attention and judges them with this locust plague. So what seems to be the case here in the first first chapter and the first half of the second chapter is that the locust plague is talked about in highly poetic language and it's referred to as a as an army okay 
And so just you got to see that or this isn't going to make sense because the very next verse says, for a nation has come up against my land. So is it a locust plague or is it a nation like an army? Which is it? Well, let's keep reading. They're powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. Again, highly poetic language. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree, which vine and fig tree oftentimes refers to Israel. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So this literally is happening, but it's also metaphorically happening as Israel is being decimated. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. If you don't have any crops, you're not going to have any crops to offer to the Lord in sacrifice. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Why has it perished? Because of the locusts. Why did the locusts come? Because of judgment. Why did the judgment come? Because of the sin and rebellion of the people. So weep and wail over your sin because of the consequences of it. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So the appropriate response is repentance, lamentation. Look now at verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and, the fi and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Again, this is highly poetic imagery. And this is describing this locust plague and it's horrific and the readers would know how horrific it was. Locusts can be like an army. Proverbs 30, 27 likens the locust to an army. But the greater meaning is that the locusts represent the day of the Lord. They, they mean that the day of the Lord has come. So in the Bible, that is a recurring theme, the day of the Lord. Okay, point number two, the day of the Lord is near. A day of the Lord is a time of judgment on God's enemies and deliverance for God's people, like at Egypt, okay, at the Exodus, right? So at the Exodus, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were judged. Israel was redeemed and freed, right? And actually the, the eighth plague before the darkness was locusts, right? So that was the judgment of God on Egypt. Or in the days of the judges, the judgment fell on Israel. 
They were God's enemies at that time because they insisted on doing what was right in their own eyes rather than trusting and submitting to him. In fact, I'm actually reading the book of Judges with Jono and Ben uh, right now, and we recently read chapter 6 about Gideon. And look at how the situation is described in the first six verses. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Do you see the judgment as a result of their rebellion and sin? And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And the Lord raised up Gideon as a deliverer and delivered them. Okay? So in Judges, the marauding nation is like locusts. In Joel, the locusts are like a marauding nation. So do you see how the metaphor can go either way? But in both cases, it's the judgment of God. It's the day of the Lord, a time of judgment in God's enemies. And it can also be a time like a wake-up call because judgment is coming, and it's a call to repent and return to the Lord so that they might be delivered. So that's what's happening here in Joel. Look at 1.15. We skipped over it. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Now skip down to chapter 2. So if it's near, if it's coming, ah, what do we do? Blow a trumpet in Zion. Okay, when you blew the trumpet, that meant that everybody needed to get ready for war. Everybody needed to be on high alert. So blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. So it seems like Joel is also referring to some of the nation judgments, the army judgments that have come down on Israel in the past or um, like the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. So whether this is locusts or whether this is a, a nation and an army, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them. But after they come through, behind them, it's a desolate wilderness. Judgment is like decreation. It's like undoing creation. God created, and it was the Garden of Eden, and everything was good, 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 and it was abundant and lush and wonderful. Our sin leads us into a wasteland, and God's judgment comes and you have desolation. 
and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run and with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains. So this is either poetic description of a powerful nation coming in. It actually seems like more likely it's still a description of the locust plague because well, we'll see it in verse 7. Like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a, like a powerful army. It's not a powerful army. It's like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, people are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Locusts do this. Again, poetic language. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. What are you going to do to stop them? I mean, thankfully, we've got some pesticides these days, so we can do some things. But back then, there was nothing they could do. They leap upon the wall. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief and eat all your food in your kitchen. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. Remember those swarms that can darken the sky and the stars withdraw? They're shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. This is not just Mother Nature. This is God the Father, the just Father who is bringing just judgment. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That is the question that ought to be echoing in our minds and in our hearts. This is serious. The day of the Lord is coming. Who can endure it? And so the book of Joel issues a call to repent and to return at the time of this impending national calamity. So that calamity is the judgment of God, but it's also a wake-up call. A wake-up call to bring their wandering, rebellious hearts back to the Lord their God. In fact, the ESV Study Bible makes this interesting comment. Joel may have served as a lament in the ongoing life of God's people during other times of national tragedy, like a reminder of how to respond. So how about that for relevance? In our prosperity, isn't it easy to get apathetic and lax spiritually? We can get comfortable in our indifference and we can subtly wander from God and serve our idols of money and comfort and success. The worries and cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches can choke out our faith. But along comes a pandemic and economic hardship and this past week flooding and murder hornets and tornadoes and one of two things can happen at least you can get angry with God for disrupting your comfortable life like I saw rise up in my own heart on what was that Tuesday when there's a drip 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 in the wall and water pouring into the basement and it just keeps coming and keeps coming and I start to get angry I'm like who do I think I am God, you are God. <laughs> this is, ah, I need to repent of that heart. 
or we can humble ourselves before the Lord and welcome any spiritual wake-up call. So look at what God calls his people to, point number three, in verse two, uh, 12 of chapter two. Look at chapter two, verse 12 and following. Point three, rend and return. Yet even now. So who can endure it? The day of the Lord is very great. It's very awesome. It's fearful, terrifying. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I don't want ritual fasting. I don't want you to just external, you know, behavior change. This needs to go to the core of who you are. Heart level change and repentance. Return to the Lord your God for, why? Why? Because he's the locust commander? Is that the only reason? No, because he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which echoes Exodus 34 when Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So why should we rend our hearts and return to the Lord our God? Because he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. The wake-up call is not because he loves to see us squirm before he slams us. The wake-up call is to get our attention so that he doesn't have to slam us with judgment, but to bring us to repentance, to return us to himself. Who knows, verse 14, whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God, a reversal of fortune. So, verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. I mean, this is what's happened. This is what happened in, in Nineveh, right? Jonah said, repent. <laughs> the day of the Lord is coming. He's going to judge you. And they fasted. And what did God do? It really ticked Jonah off. We'll get to him in a few weeks. But he relented because he's merciful and gracious. That's his heart. That's who he is. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, leave, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This is urgent, this is serious, this matters more than anything else. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So rend your hearts and return. Do you, do I, do we ever weep over our sin? So even the toughest among us in this room have things that can bring us to tears. The question is, are your sins ever one of those things? So Thomas Watson lived a few hundred years ago. He wrote this. How far are they from being godly who scarce ever shed a tear for sin? If they lose a near relation, they weep. But though they are in danger of losing God and their souls, they weep not. 
How few know what it is to be in an agony for sin or what a broken heart means. It was a greater plague for Pharaoh to have his heart turned to stone than to have his rivers turned into blood. Others, if they do sometimes shed a tear, yet they are never the better. They go on in wickedness and do not drown, kill their sins in their tears. In other words, he's distinguishing between worldly grief, worldly sorrow, that doesn't really lead to true repentance. It's just that you're upset about the consequences of your sin or it made you look bad, but you don't actually care about your sin in relation to God which is godly grief that leads to repentance. True heart change, rending our hearts, not our garments. So Watson goes on, let us labor for this divine character. Be weepers. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. This, this kind of godly grief, this blessed are those who mourn weeping, this is a repentance that you don't need to repent of. He goes on, there are two labors to wash away sin, blood and tears. The blood of Christ washes away the guilt of sin. Tears wash away the filth. Repenting tears are precious. God puts them in his bottle. They are beautifying. A tear in the eye does more to adorn than a ring on the finger. Tears are comforting. A sinner's mirth turns to melancholy a saint's mourning turns to music. Repentance may be bitter to the fleshly part, our sinful nature, but it is most refreshing to the spiritual. Wax that melts is fit for the seal. A melting soul is fit to take the stamp of all heavenly blessings. Let us give Christ the water of our tears and he will give us the wine of his blood. So this call to repentance, to rend your hearts and return to the Lord, this is like a turning point. And the latter half of the book, we see God's response beginning in chapter 2, verse 18. And no surprise, it's mercy. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. He wanted their hearts. He wants his people. He wants our hearts, just like we looked at last week in Hosea. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. It's the reversal of fortunes here. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, which could refer to where the <coughs> locusts came from, or it could be one of those marauding armies from the north, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. I'll just completely wipe him out. So as fearful and fearsome as the locust plague or the army has been, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. So you think those locusts can do great things? You think those armies can do great things? Well, the Lord can do greater things. 
He can completely reverse the fortunes. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, the city of God, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I'm present with you. And that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So do you see all those beautiful reversals as a result of the repentance and return of the people and the Lord responds with mercy and he's going to drive out those invaders and ruin those that have ruined them and restore the land to the way it was before or even better and he brings his presence among his people that's the best thing the greatest gift so the Lord has mercy on the repentant mercy and restoration are found on the far side of judgment that gets their attention which leads us to point number four, the day of the Lord. Part one, salvation and mission. Okay, so remember, day of the Lord in the Bible is a time of judgment on God's enemies and deliverance for God's people. The warning of the day of the Lord coming or being near is a call to repent and return to the Lord and be ready for that day when it comes, right? So all the lowercase days of the Lord in the past are mere foreshadows, like Egypt. It's just a foreshadowing of the great day of judgment and deliverance, the final day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, when he returns in power and glory to set the world to rights. So think of that day, the end, when Jesus returns, and the language of Joel 2.11 really lands with some weight. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? How in the world can you be ready for the return of Christ and the end? A locust plague is a flea bite in comparison with the irreversible and inescapable and eternal judgment of that day. There's no appeals in that court. And so in that light, you have the prophecy of the end of chapter 2. Look at 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward. So wait, after the day of the Lord? After judgment falls? That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Those whom the Lord calls will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. These verses are quoted by Peter in the text that Lindy read at Pentecost. They were fulfilled at Pentecost. How so? Well, think about it. This is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, part one. The Lord's judgment fell on Jesus and mercy and salvation is poured out now on those who call on the name of the Lord everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved Peter quotes it Acts 2 Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10 so have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved If you haven't, you can right now, this morning. And I urge you to. In the face of a locust plague, you would not be apathetic. The end is coming. The day of the Lord is near and quickly approaching. Who can endure it unless you have a refuge and a savior, Jesus? You've got to call on his name to be saved. And don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. So apathy is not a good option. We sometimes choose it, but it is not a good option. Judgment is coming for all of us, and the only refuge from that coming storm is to run to Jesus and find refuge and forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation with God through him. Two more other important implications to this prophecy being fulfilled at Pentecost that we should note. First, do you see how all God's people will become prophets? How that's the fulfillment of this prophecy in Joel 2 to Acts 2? Who are the prophets in the Old Testament? Well, by and large, they represented the ones who heard and heeded the word of God and then communicated it to the people. So Jonah didn't heed it, but, you know, he was more an exception. And that was a problem, which is why that book is unique. So the people around them oftentimes, if you look at the major prophets, the minor prophets, were sticking their fingers in their ears and shouting the prophets down because they're ruining their fun. Well, in the new covenant, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters, old and young, even the servants. Doesn't matter your station. So Hassel Bullock, a guy who taught me in undergrad at Wheaton College, he writes this, Old Testament scholar, Joel finally envision, envisions that society open to the voice of God in word, dream, and vision with every social rank of society responsive to his revelation. The covenant people would recognize their God acknowledge him alone as sovereign Lord and submit to his commands. The age had dawned when all men and women would join the prophetic ranks 
when all would hear the voice of God and render obedience to his name. (coughs) So do you see, here we have Joel heeding the word of God and sharing it, but the problem was the people were not listening and they needed to repent and return. And this is similar with some of the other prophets as well. In the new covenant, we're all in the role of the prophet who hears the word and heeds the word and shares the word, which leads us to the second implication. It has an implication for mission. So the Spirit's poured out on all God's people. He dwells with us. He dwells in us. We know the Lord. We hear and we heed his word, but we also are his spokespeople in the world. The Spirit is poured out on us for the sake of mission. So in Acts 2, the pouring out of the Spirit led to people from all kinds of tribes and nations and tongues hearing the Word of God, the mighty works of God proclaimed in their native tongues. Isn't that mission? (laughs) Like we we were given this grace, like 1 Peter 2, that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light which is just in line with Acts 1 1 8 Jesus said but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth so Acts 2 fulfillment of Joel 2 means that we are all prophets and we should all hear and heed and share the word of God and we are to be sharing it, this implies mission, that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus would go to every tongue and tribe and nation. So until Jesus returns, now is the time of salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now is the time for mission. We have received the spirit that we might warn other people, people we rub shoulders with, our neighbors and coworkers and family members of the coming day of the Lord and share the best news in the world that for those who repent and rend their hearts, Jesus actually took the judgment day for us, the day of the Lord judgment. He took that titanic hammer blow of judgment for us. He was totally decimated so that we could be blessed and restored so that the final day of the Lord will be a day of wonderful reversals and restoration and unending fullness and vitality instead of eternal desolation. So chapter three is what that's all about. Let's kind of skim through it quickly with the last point, the day of the Lord part two, restoration and desolation. This is the final day at the return of Christ. And chapter 3 points in that direction. So, for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them. So, because of their sin, they're going to be judged. All the nations will be judged. So, this is pointing ahead to the final judgment. Reversals are going to come. Verse 4, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Verse 7, behold, I stir them up from the place to which you've sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. 
So all of the wickedness, all the sin, nobody's getting away with anything. That judgment is going to come one day and all the, rights, all the wrongs will be righted. Verse nine, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war. This is an interesting image here in this section. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. So in other words, go ahead and try to win this battle. You're going to come to the valley of decision to be judged, and you can bring all the weapons you want. But if God is the one you're facing in that valley of decision at the day of the Lord judgment, you got no chance. So verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and earth quake. Again, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So if you are not in Christ, that is the most terrifying day you can imagine. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel, so that you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, the city of God, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. It's like a new Eden. It's like the city of God. Revelation 21 and 22, where this river flows from the throne and everything is lush and the tree of life lines the river and its leaves and its fruit are for the healing of the nations. So the enemies will become a desolation, verse 19, a desolate wilderness. But verse 20, Judah and Jerusalem, the people of God shall be inhabited forever and to all generations. So do you see how apathy is just not an option? (laughs) I mean, you certainly could. You just could not be. If you're the subsistence farmer in Kenya, you could not be apathetic to an impending locust plague. And if that's the case, how much more is apathy out of place as the day of the Lord draws near? And praise the Lord, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve in our place on the cross. So how can we be apathetic toward the cross? And yet we are, right? So we should rend our hearts and say, Lord, I hate it when I'm cold toward the the greatest expression of love this world has ever known. And we weep and we return. And he poured out his spirit on his people at Pentecost and us to empower us for mission. So may we never be apathetic to the prophetic missional calling that is ours as his people. Jesus is coming back, folks. And the only way to endure in that day is to be saved by calling out to him because judgment is coming. But also full and final and wonderful restoration is coming. So may we not be apathetic 
to the fullness of joy forever in the presence of our God and Savior with just these beautiful images of vitality that only begin to point to the glory that awaits us. Because you know what? Oftentimes, this world will feel like scorched earth. You know, Jesus told us in this world you'll have trouble. And it can seem like the world's coming to an end around us and many people around you feel like maybe that's what's going on. So remember that word from the ESV Study Bible. Joel may have served as a lament in the ongoing life of God's people during other times of national tragedy. And it serves us as a wake-up call, a call to repentance, to rend our hearts, that God would have our hearts to return to him and to live out his mission as his prophetic people to the nations and to our neighbors. Because we have a living hope. We have the hope of the restoration of all things, like chapter 3 points to and paints in vivid colors. So we're going to close by singing a song called Living Hope. And let's just pray that where we need to repent and return, that the Lord would shine the spotlight in the dark corners of our hearts by his spirit, and that we would return to him wholeheartedly, that we would weep over our sin, and that we would also rejoice in his mercy and his grace. Oh God, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see it, see it so clearly at the cross of Christ. And we see it at Pentecost as you poured out your spirit to make a new people and to spread your grace and truth to the nations so that people would be ready for the day of the Lord that is near and approaching quickly. So Lord, help each of us to be ready. Do the work in our hearts now. Help us to welcome that work right now and be honest with ourselves and with you. And then help us go out from here and be your prophetic people to love and share the truth with others so that they might be ready for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.